at a desire in you to figure out who this God is. If you remember last week, we talked about drawing near to God. And if you remember, we discussed the relationship between grace and humility as well as submissiveness that is evident of a person that has actually drawn closer to God. We also discussed God's pursuit of us. So today we want to go deeper into what it means for us to draw near to God on a personal level. If we want the fulfillment that God has for us in this earth, it will be only through a sincere and strong draw to him and in relationship with him. There was this little boy who was outside playing basketball one day. And while he was out there playing basketball, this dog started to run towards him. And so he did what we are all probably naturally inclined to do. He saw a dog running. Guess what he did? He started running too. So now he's running and the dog is running behind him. And his dad kind of glances and sees that this dog is running behind him and he screams, Son, stop! The boy ignored his father and kept running because he knew that this dog was close enough behind him. Again, his father screamed, Son, just stop! This time, through labored breaths, the boy was barely able to get out. He's chasing me! And so he kept running. Finally, the dad just held up his hands and said, boy, just stop running. And so finally, the son heeded to his father's word and he came to a sudden stop. The dad said, yeah, now turn around and look. The dog has stopped chasing him. He said, now start walking towards him. And as he started walking towards the dog, the dog ran up to him leapt up on him and started to lick him. Now, what does that mean? The dog just wanted a relationship with him. And it was his pursuit of him that showed that he desired to have a relationship with him. Now, that boy did what many of us are naturally inclined to do is that when we see the pursuit, we think that it's a chase. Many of us have run from God thinking that he's chasing us. But there is a difference between a pursuit and a chase. God is not chasing us to catch us and harm us, but God has actively pursued us. And it's not until many of us have stopped running and turned the course of our lives around that we saw that it was God who was waiting there for us with open arms to receive us in fellowship with him. When we stop running from God, we will turn and draw near to him. And if we draw near to God, God has proven to us through his word that he is faithful to draw near to us. And that's where we're going to begin again today. James chapter 4, verse 8. You remember we discussed a portion of this, but we're going to finish this scripture today. 4 and 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. When James tells us to draw near to God, he is intimating that we have in fact turned away from God. That means that this text is a call to seek for God repentantly with faith and with contrition. Why do so many of us, even in this room, feel that there is a great distance in between us and God? It's because quite often, though we claim we have returned to God, we have not returned to God with a repentant and a contrite heart. Oftentimes, listen, the natural tendency is for us to see the person next door seeing as much worse than ours, but ours is the one that we kind of sweep under the rug. See, what they're doing is awful, but we tend to harbor our own personal sins. What is even worse is that God, in his faithfulness, not only protects us from our sins and from the effects of our sins, but God delivers us from our sins as well. Now, most of us only get out of sin or change our behavior or change our lives, not because we are truly repentant or not because we're truly contrite, because we truly got caught. And many of us, as we change our behavior, we may stop doing the thing that we got caught doing. But the question is, did we return to God both repentant and contrite? Not because we got caught, but because we displeased God. See, the embarrassment and the public nature of our fall will drive us to change, but it doesn't always drive us back to God. And so there are many people who through their falls and through their sins have seemingly restored a right relationship with God. But I want you to see that unless we pursue God with contrition and with repentance, it would not restore any relationship we have with him at all. And so what is often unfortunately the case is that there is a discernible distance in the relationship we had with God versus the relationship we currently have with God because we haven't sought him repentantly. And so that is actually the only point for today's sermon. It's a one-point sermon. You'll see why at the end. The believer seeks God repentantly. That's it. One point today. The believer seeks God repentantly. The Bible tells us that there are three ways in which we sin against God. We sin against God by thought. We sin against God by word. And we sin against God by deed. Every day in one of those forms, we sin against God. Whether we do so consciously or not, we are in various forms committing sins against our holy God every single day. Knowing this, all of the time that we seek God, we must do so with the humility of his pursuit 
of us. But we also must do so knowing that sin is ever present in our lives. Listen, as long as we are clothed in flesh and we live here in this world, we will always have some sin to repent to God about. Now, it is my desire to be sin free. But the reality is until I die and leave this earth and I'm joined in his presence, none of us will ever be sin free. And so anytime we approach God with a prayer, with anything, with a song, scripture tells us we better do so with clean hearts. We better seek after God with clean hearts. And when we pursue God with that humility, this is what makes God truly draw near to us because we do have the right to petition God. We absolutely have been given the right to petition God. How is that? Because we have been given a permanent mediator between us and God. Who is that? It's Jesus Christ. So, let me show you this in 1 Timothy 2 and 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So just in case you don't know, but this is the significance of the veil being torn in two when Jesus died on the cross. The priests no longer have to go in on our behalf as the mediator because a perfect sacrifice has been given. And that perfect sacrifice now stands as the perfect mediator between us and God. James is evoking this imagery when he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. See, when priests would go in to make the sacrifices, one of the requirements was that they cleanse their hands before they made the sacrifices. Just in case you know this, only the priests could enter into the holies of holies. And when they did so, you know what they had on the, uh, the edge of their robes? They had bells. Why did they have bells on? Because just in case they went in with unclean hands and an unclean heart, that means that if they didn't hear the bells ringing anymore, that priest was dead. And the only way that they were going to get that priest out is that they had this long hook and they would slide it in and pull him on out. See, that's what he's evoking. See, the only time a priest would go in with unclean hands was because he went in with an unclean heart. Because the priest that had to offer sacrifices for your sins had to offer sacrifices for his sins as well. But Jesus Christ, being the perfect mediator between us and God, lived the perfect life sin-free. So he doesn't have to offer any sacrifices for his sins because in him, as the Bible tells us, there is no sin. If I was at an apostolic church, they would have taken off running right there. James addresses this group as sinners and as double-minded. Remember, he is writing to a primarily Jewish audience, and the fact is that there may have been many who professed their desire for God, but it was only on their lips, but not in their hearts. 
Therefore, he tells them to as well, not just cleanse your hands, but do what? Purify your hearts. In other words, if you want to be close to God, G.E. Patterson said it like this. It's an inside job. Which means it must be done from the inside, not the outside. This would not have been new information to them, especially as a primarily Jewish audience, because the prophet Isaiah had a similar admonishment for the Lord to Israel. In Isaiah 29 and 13, this is the words of the prophet. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment, but it's a commandment taught by men. God does not honor our lip service. He only honors our heart service. Our hearts must desire him They must long for him. They must yearn for him. It is only when our hearts yearn and long for God that we will be repentant for all the sins in our lives. The ones we deem big and the ones we call small will cause us to run to his presence so that we can be cleansed from our sins. It will cause us to fall to our face in prayer. Until only God restores us. This is why scripture calls David a man after God's own heart. Because despite his sins, which by the way, there were many. He always poured himself out before God. He never tried to cover up who he was in the eyes of God. But when he approached God, he always exposed himself before God. And he never ceased to repent. So when people say, well, how can he be such a man after God's own heart, even though his life was riddled with sin? Because... Even though his life was full of sin, he was never content with his life being full of sin. Look at Psalm 51. This is the most repentant text, I believe, in the Bible. And we shall in no wise approach God any less intently any less passionately than David approaches God in this text. What does he say? Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For God, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I ain't trying to hide it, God. I know exactly who I am. There is no grace that I can apply here, God. I know exactly who I am and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only, God, have I sinned 
and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in the truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. God created me a clean heart and renew the right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, God. Many of us have lost the joy of our salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it, God. You will not even be pleased with a burnt offering. What are the sacrifices to God? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Yeah, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Why is David a man of after God's own heart? It's because of that passion. He says, you won't even accept my sacrifices, God, until I get my heart right. And when I get my heart right, my lips will sing your praise. Not only will my lips sing your praise, but God, everything that I have to give to you, you won't reject it, but you will accept it, God. But I got to have a right heart with you. What are the sacrifices to God? It's a broken spirit, not a haughty one. So many of us, because we are in this self-esteem, humanistic generation. That we think that we got to be so proud of ourselves. But he says not until you are broken before God. Not until you are repentant. Not until you are contrite before God will he restore you and accept your sacrifices. See many of us are disappointing God. Not because we're failures in the world. But it's because we're successes in the world. And we are boasting and boosting all of the esteem that we think we need. But David said, unless you come to God completely broken, he won't even accept your sacrifices. How 
how many times do we show up Sunday after Sunday, Sunday after Sunday to sing praises to God that he's not accepting because we haven't given him our hearts? Because we have not been vulnerable before him. Because we haven't been broken before him. The problem is people are so convinced that we are good, we are special, that we need more self-esteem, that we have haters, that we're great. Listen, we are not great. And we don't need to be. God is great. And as long as God is great, I don't have to try to be. Because I can't compete with God. My arms are too short to box with God. So God, you be great. And as you increase, as the prayer says, God, let me decrease. Because as long as I'm getting the glory, God will not. Until we can look at his holiness and see our utter despair and wretchedness. Do you hear how desperate David is to be reconciled back to God? He's not trying to take advantage of grace. He's saying, God, I'm aware of the person that I am. No, it's not, oh, yeah, you just made a mistake. No, God, my sin is ever before me and only you can take it away. Only you can take away the sin in my life, God. So what sense does it make that I would hide who I am from God? Because it's God who doesn't look at the outside, but he knows the heart. He says, against you have I sinned, O God, and it's only against you. I didn't sin against Bathsheba. I didn't sin against Uriah. They may have felt the effects of my sin, but God, my sin is only offensive to you. So before I can even go to that person, God, I need to be restored to you. I need to be right in your eyes, God. That's why James says, be wretched, mourn, and weep about your sin. Don't gloss over it. Don't sweep it under the rug. Don't pretend it's not there. Acknowledge it. Expose it before God. What does the Bible say? If we confess our sins, he is just to forgive us of them. We have to stop hiding who we are in the eyes of God. And crack open our chest and say, God, this is who I really am. Be in despair about your sin because that is the only way you will be humble enough for God to reach down and pull you back up. That is why the hymn says, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my what kind of cry? My despairing cry, and from the waters he lifted me. Now safe am I, unless you cry out to God, he can't pull you out of the water. Till we come to God in reference of his holiness and in humility, we will never draw near to him. 
Listen, drawing near to God is not you necessarily welling up in tears, although this sermon did make me cry. Rolling on the floor, praying until your knees are callous or some arbitrary emotional response. But it is when your heart and your your soul long for God more than anything else. What does the psalmist say? He says this. Psalm 42. My dad said it during the song. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? You get that imagery? The psalmist is saying, as the deer realizes that the only way his life will continue is if he gets the water that he needs. He so long and desires and pants and urges after that water. He yearns for it. That is the same way we should desire God. God, until I get in your presence. God, until you fill me. God, until you refresh me. I'm going to die if I don't get some of you. Because my very sustenance is dependent on God. See, it reminds me of our old school church members. See, they literally didn't know how the bills were going to be paid. They literally didn't know how the lights were going to stay on. They didn't know where the food was going to come from. They didn't know how anything was going to be taken care of. So they had no choice but to be dependent on God. God, I don't know how the way is going to be made, but I'm so dependent on you to make a way. I'm just going to sit back and relax until you do it. Oh, for us to get back to the day when it wasn't our acumen, when it wasn't our intelligence, when it wasn't how smart we are, how good looking we are. But because we were so dependent on God to meet every one of our needs. So many of us have so much that we have forgotten that we still need God. Nobody in this room woke themselves up this morning. And however long you slept, you were unconscious. And God protected you. And not only did he protect you, but he snatched you out of unconsciousness. You didn't do that. He was God. Because right now, at this very moment, there are alarm clocks going off that people didn't wake up and turn off. It was God who did it. You would literally see them, the old school saints, when they would come to church. They were so desperate to get back in his presence. But when they came in church, the aroma of God was on them because they had prayed and they had sought God all week long. And when they came together, they were so excited to fellowship with the other members of the body. What has happened to us? 
Why has God just become the side table, the convenience store in our lives? Because there is no longer a faithful desire for him. We just need him to do stuff. As the psalmist says that his soul thirsts for God, Jesus made this promise. He said, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, guess what's going to happen? They shall be completely filled. So if you are hungering and you are thirsting, but there is no filling, then maybe we're not hungering and thirsting after God. Let me ask you these questions. Does the love of God, does the, does the love you have for God motivate everything you do? Is the way you behave at work consistent with your pursuit of God? What about the way we behave at home? What about when no one else is around? What drives us? See, it's not who you are when people are around, but it's who you are when there is nobody else there. That's who we really are. What are we pursuing every other day besides Sunday? When we are hungry and thirsting, is it of spiritual food or carnal desire? Are we dependent on God to meet every one of our needs or is he just our glorified convenience store? When we sin before God, are we godly sorrowful and repentant or do we just softly apply grace and forget it ever happened? I don't have a million points in this sermon today, and I didn't stylistically develop it the way that I typically do or the way that you're accustomed to. But all I want you to be today is a room full of people who desire the heart of God more than anything else. There is going to be a day for all of us when we will see the glorious fruits of our pursuit of him and he give, and he will give us the inheritance that he has planned for us. And we will see him face to face. And we will reside with him and in his glory. Or we will see a glimpse of what we never actually had. And the moment we see that he is fully worth, it will be too late for us to pursue him. This is what Montague Villiers said. He said, drawing near is not one isolated act. It is nor merely turning to God and saying, I have come to him. The expression is draw. It is not a single act. It is the drawing, the coming, the habitual walk going on and on and on. So long as we are on this earth, it is therefore a habitual religion which must be pressed and enforced upon us. Now the last thing I want you to see today is that if we are faithful to pursue God with the filthiness that is our sin, Jesus Christ is faithful to present us blameless before God. Let's look at Jude 1, 24. Now, to him who is able to keep you. I want you to see what it actually says in the Greek. King James got this wrong. King James says to keep you from falling. 
That's not the right text. In the Greek, that word literally means he's not just strong enough to keep you from falling. He's strong enough to keep you from even stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. What a sight to behold that even in our fallenness, scripture tells us that he's not just able to keep us from falling, but even when we're about to stumble, the grace of Jesus Christ will prevent us from even stumbling. But not only that, when we come to him exposed, when we come to him wretched, when we come to him filthy, when we come to him sinless, the Bible tells us that he's not going to present us as sinners, but he will present us blameless, sin-free, as if we are innocent, though we are guilty. If you can't shout about that. Because the reality is, I am exactly who God says I am. Whether that be good or whether that be bad, I am exactly who God says I am. And if I want to be right in the eyes of God, it will only be because Jesus Christ took off his righteousness. He put on my sin and he took the righteousness that he took off of himself and he threw it on my back. That's the only way we will be presented to him. That's blameless. Because he has exchanged our sins for his righteousness. How could you not chase and pursue and long and yearn for a God like that? Because though I am guilty, he has declared me righteous. And he presents me before his father and the angels with great joy. I don't know about you, but this sermon has restored the joy of my salvation.